he got onto her lawn and he saw three men running out her front door, cursing her and moving down her steps. And he knew that they had shot her. He had heard gunshots and he pulled his gun and he shot one of them and killed him. But another one had what he called a stupid little white plastic gun. With me today is returning guest, Father Nathan Castle. Uh, welcome back, Father Nathan. It's nice to see you again. Great to be here. Okay, I thought we might just start with, there's going to be some viewers who haven't seen an interview of you before. So could you tell us about how you first came to be helping souls cross over? Yes, uh, that, there's two parts to that. One of them um, is from early childhood. I grew up in a Roman Catholic home with uh, my my dad had only two siblings, both of whom became Dominican nuns and first grade teachers. And my mom was a great woman of faith and a great uh, teacher, not just of rules and regulations of an organized religion, but of spirit. I knew spirit communication uh, from really early, just because that's what we did. We had a family on earth and a family in heaven. So we, you mentioned just before we came on that you read for about the last 15 or 20 minutes before sleep. Well, in childhood, we talked to our heavenly family before we went to sleep. And uh, then when I learned about death, do you, do you remember about what age you might have been when you learned that death was a thing? I have this memory of, it was when my, my Nana died. That was when death became a reality for me, I suppose, because up until that point, there was nobody in my immediate family who had died. And how old were you? So I was about um, whoa, 20, I'd say 20 at that point. Oh, wow. I was thinking that would have been, you know. I'm thinking about when you first saw a dead bird or, or you, you oh, I see. Yeah. Pet or yeah. That's a little different. Yeah. Growing up on the farm. Yeah. So, you know, from, from, I guess, six, five or six onwards that, yeah, death that's was around as far as say. animals go. I yeah. was, um, I, I, we were taught and I was in Catholic schools all the way. We were taught when I was about five or six that when, that we would die one day and then we would go to live with God in heaven and. Uh, but there were three different destinations. There was heaven, hell, or purgatory, which were very much like in North America, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. There were these, these distinct afterlife places that seemed to have uh, fixed boundaries. And you, the, 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 the really good people went to one, the terrible people went to the other, and most everybody else landed in the middle somehow. And so I was praying for the souls in purgatory because we were told to, that we could help them. And that uh, I imagined it like people standing in line at the bank. Uh, that it's orderly and somebody's about to get their turn. And my aunt, one of my aunts was a, a nun and a teacher. And she said, while you're a child, uh, pray for everyone and everything you can, because the prayers of children go straight to God's heart and you won't be a child for very long. So don't waste your short childhood. Pray for everyone you can think of. And then, um, I think another one told me, well, if you were, if yours was the prayer that sprung once someone from purgatory into heaven you'd have a friend for all eternity. So I, that was the low hanging fruit. I would imagine them standing in line, whoever was one aggravating prayer away from heaven, I would pray it and they would spring into heaven. That was the deal. So, uh, but then later, much later, around, I'm now 68 years old almost. And at around 40, I began having this phenomenon of people coming into my dreams at night, uh, showing me uh, usually a sudden and violent passing that's kind of buffered. I, it wasn't like nightmares, but it was, car crashes and drownings and such uh, without them being horrifying. And uh, then I began to figure out people were 
asking for help. And then it was a matter of figuring out how to provide it. So at what point did you go, okay, this isn't just a dream. This is actually a message. You know, it was, some people might have those. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was the very first one that's in my first book, uh, after life interrupted, uh, book one, helping stuck souls cross over. It was a man, uh, named Ray who showed me a dream that was unlike my regular cycle babble. I mean, I, I remember dreams every night, at least a little. And this one was, uh, just so different. I, I was, uh, it, it, it indicated time and space, the way that movies often do at the very beginning, when you're just sitting down with your popcorn, the movie starts and there might be automobiles or fashions or music in the background that orient you to time and place. And, uh, this dream did that. I was on the, I was sitting on the radiator of an automobile from the late 1950s, the kind with lots of chrome. I, I hadn't been in a wreck. Uh, but I was, I was sitting on one of these cars facing away from it with the hood up and I burst into flames. Why would anybody be doing that anyway? Why would anyone be sitting on the radiator of a car with the hood open, um, but at, at, on fire, but he was screaming and angry while he was dying. And I woke up and that's just so unlike any other dream I'd ever dreamt that it stood out. I just said, hello, whoever you are, my name is Nathan and. You're welcome here. I'll do what I can to help. And that's how it helps. <laughs> that was, I call that a contact dream. I make a distinction between, uh, having a dream or receiving a dream. So that was receiving a dream. Somebody was trying to get through to me and he did. Mm. It's like somebody's like injecting it into your, into your consciousness in a way. Sometimes they use the metaphor of stepping into a river that, um, or floating the boat, something like that. You know how we talk about, uh, we use the phrase stream of consciousness mm -hmm. at our, our dreaming consciousness at night, apparently that that metaphor is apt because they keep using it. They saying, well, it's sort of like, yeah, you, they bring you there, but you, you still have to get in the boat or something. I hear a lot of things like that. that are, and some of them said, it's like a green sparkly river and you just get in it. And once you're in it, then you can, uh, kind of ride on it sort of, or you can communicate inside it. So tell us about the process of, of how you work with a prayer partner to sort of get back into conversation with the souls who make contact with you in your dreams. Well, I, even with the very first one, I went to a partner who was, I was on a retreat and she was on the same retreat. So in the morning I found her over a cup of coffee and said, when we get a free moment, could we go into prayer and see what we could do to help? And she had some spiritual gifts I thought might be helpful and they were. Um, and then once we were in it, I, uh, I discovered, I knew from maybe 20 years earlier that once in a while, when the Holy spirit uh, wanted this gift to manifest, I could allow my voice to be borrowed by someone else, uh, for, for speech, uh, that often is called channeling in the church. I prefer to call it a gift of prophecy. And Judaism and Christianity, many times a, a service begins with a reading from the prophet Isaiah or some other prophet, and they will talk in their own voice for a while. And then at some point they'll say, thus saith the Lord. And then you know, God's voice moves through them. So that's familiar to Jews and Christians. And that's what happens. I, I, I'm not overtaken. I'm not entranced. I just allow my voice to be borrowed so somebody can have a turn and say what they need to say. And so hmm. that happens with, uh, we, we go into what I call protected prayer. Uh, I 
first used Michael the Archangel and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and St. Dominic, the patron and founder of the order I belong to, a lot of the holy ones. And I think of us being inside a holy huddle. Um, you know, I'm American and our Super Bowl is coming up. We watch a lot of football here. I mean, you'll have your own Australian football, but do they make huddles before plays in Australian football? Do they gather? Right. In well, yeah, going? yeah. I think most sports, yeah, we do that. Yeah. Well, in, in American football, the, the players gather before the play, the, the team that's on offense gathers in a circle and they talk about what they're going to do. And I think of it like that, except not just on one plane, more of being inside an orb than inside a circle on a field. Uh, I, I ask the Holy Ones to surround us to keep us safe from interference and harm, and then we get to work. Uh, we, we simply say hello, and very often I, I believe in what, what I call a guardian angel. Uh, other people might call that a um, spirit guide, but a being who is, accompanies us, who loves us, and who's trying to protect us. And I ask them to give some clarity because the nature of dreams has some uh, gauziness or some symbology in it. Sometimes it's not completely clear. So I'll ask them, for example, you could have told me in a dream that you died in an, in an automobile accident, but you didn't tell me your gender. Well, I'd kind of know, like to know, am I talking to a male or a female? Uh, I don't think I've done any Australians, but I've been with uh, South Americans and Asians and Middle Easterners. And so sometimes I get the feeling that I'm in a country not my own, and I'll say, is this in another place? And anyway, they'll orient me just a little bit. And it also acts as a kind of a mic test. It shows, like, before doing these shows, we always have to do a little bit of that to get the technology right. And this helps a person who's not used to borrowing another person's voice to see how it's done. Their guardian will model it for them for a few minutes and then they'll come on the line. So you've been doing this for how long now? Is it, is it 30 years? About 28, I think. Okay. Okay. So uh, in that time, I mean, there's been some pretty memorable experiences. I imagine, I know just from reading your books that there's been a few, is there one that really stands out to you? That's the most memorable? Well, um, I've answered that question a lot of different ways. Most of the time that people have died of a trauma, a shooting, a stabbing, a drowning, something. Sometimes they had a trauma that kind of killed their soul, that took the life out of them, but they didn't die. Um, and they uh, had to make it through the rest of their life somehow. So you might know at least one unfortunate person like that who's had some tragedy that they just haven't healed from and they uh, kind of stumbled about. And there was a lady named Wilhelmina that's, I think, in book two. Did you run across her yet? Uh, I haven't come to her yet. I'm about a third the way through book two. She was, I think, uh, living in the United States in the late 1950s when television was new. Most people listened to the radio or maybe their record player or something. She was, she was in, what, in what she called her front room on a nice day, and she decided that today is going to be the day to mend the torn clothing, which was a task she hated doing. But she saved it up in a basket. And then a couple of times a year, she would just decide today is mending day. And she would um, try to make it something fun by pretending the clothing were people and she was fixing them. So she would, she would talk to the torn sock and say, you, Mr. Torn Sock, any second now, you're going to be good as new. You just wait and see. And she, so she explained that that was her, what she was doing when her husband walked into the room. She, she shouted his name because he looked strange. 
And she shouted his name and he, he fell to the floor. And she said, you know how people sometimes use the phrase uh, dead weight? That's what he was. Uh, he hit the floor and there was just, he was gone. And she was so shocked uh, as suddenly her house filled up with neighbors and paramedics and police and uh, her children. And she felt like her, her entire agency had gone away. Other people were doing everything around her and she was just this uh, odd spectator to her life. And she dissociated. She was so in such pain, she moved aside from herself and started saying, what should a woman do when her husband just died? She probably should go to the closet and pick out the clothes he'll be laid out in. She probably ought to write an obituary. She probably ought to call his old employer. So she went one step removed from herself and she never went back in. She lived for maybe another eight to 10 years like that. And she said, I began to be a weird old lady uh, and I avoided uh, the social after church. I only went to the store when I could dart in and dart out. I made excuses that the dog or the cat needed to be home right away uh, so that she wouldn't have to talk to people very much. So she was a Catholic and she just thought that she had been taught about heaven and she just hoped that her sad life would end when she died and then it would be what she called glory. She just wanted it to, she wanted it to die and be done with this life and then it would be glory. Well, she did die in a nursing home and she said, um, I got here and there was other people around here ready to help me, but I, I made it hard for them. I, I didn't give them very much to work with. I'd gotten so used to being so inactive that I, I did very little when I got here too. And they said, well, all of the, it can be really lovely here, but you do have to take part. She had her guardian was with her and she said they started bringing around people from happier times in her life, like when she was a little girl. And they tried to get her to re-engage her imagination in times that were not so unhappy. And people would visit her and reminisce with her. And then they'd say, one of these days when you're ready, we're going to take you to lunch. But it was as though they were visiting someone at a nursing home. And they said, one of these days when you fill up to it, we're going to take you to lunch. And they kept you know, urging her to come a little bit further. And eventually she decided, you know what, I'm not, I wasn't always so slow. She was thinking about herself as a child in school. And she said, I wasn't always the smartest or the brightest, but it depended on the subject. And there were times when I could move faster because I apprehended well. So she started taking direction and she started moving faster until um, one day they said to her, you know what, there's somebody that really wants to be with you and, and you've kept him waiting quite a long while. That, of course, was Eric, her husband. And she had just tried to blot out all the memories of him. And she said, well, okay, uh, maybe he could come and, and stand at a distance. And so he did, but he turned himself into 16-year-old Eric, their first date. And she said, well, he's looking like he did the first date we went on. He's standing in his mama's yard and he's holding flowers, but they're not the store-bought kind. They don't all match because they're from out of her yard. And he's gone to a lot of trouble to learn how to do that because he died an older man. But he's learned how to be his teenage self. And it's clear that he wants me to... Uh, be with him. So I'm not going to keep him waiting any longer. So off they went. So I love that story. Uh, she told me that she, uh, we all, we used to ask, how did you find me? What, 
of all the ways that this could move in the universe, how did you find me? And she said, well, when they thought I was approaching the time to be ready to do some moving, uh, she said, I used to shop from thick paper catalogs in the U.S. They were Sears and uh, J.C. Penney. Was there anything like that in Australia? Do you remember? Were there yes. some yeah. where you? Well, on, on the farm, it was the we called it the Elders Catalog. So it was all the sort of farming related things. But there was this re that was the only catalog that we used to get. Yeah. Well, they'd have they'd have photographs of whatever it was that they were trying to sell, and if you chose it, it had little tiny numbers that you, code numbers that you had to write down on a piece of paper that was in the catalog and mail it off somewhere. Anyway, she remembered shopping like that. And so she, they said, just sit down with this catalog here. And when you see something that appeals to you, let us know. But she was paging through a catalog like she was accustomed to. She turned the page and I was there. She said, oh, look, there's a Catholic priest that does this. Well, I think I'd like him because I'm a Catholic. So she picked me out of a catalog. I can't remember if I asked you this last time, but when you first started getting your contact dreams and then, you know, working with your prayer partner, what was the general uh, feedback from your from within your church community? Not just from the people you know in your congregation, but also you know your your colleagues and other other priests that you work with. I was very quiet about it for a very long time because I just thought it was um, more than people would uh, take on. You know, um, I, I belong to the International Association for Near Death Studies. And they, I haven't had a near-death experience, you know, one of those out-of-body things where people mm -hmm. float and come back and so on. But they include people that have had spiritually transformative experiences, which has happened to me a number of times. And when we're together at an IONS meeting, nobody makes fun of anybody else. You, mm -hmm. Rod, you can just be as outlandish as the day is long and nobody's going to make fun of you. And so I waited until I was no longer a pastor. Um, I was busy at cafe, at universities. I was at uh, Arizona State University and at Stanford. Uh, 25 years I did that work. And I just thought if I talked about this publicly, it would interfere. So I just did it on, just did it quietly. And I kept good notes. Uh, have a lot of things cached in my computer. A lot of, I have about 550 stories, I think. I record them all. So, and then I get them transcribed. So I have good files of all these things. But when I did in 2018, write the first book, I first went to my religious superior and told him, I'm about to do this, but I want you to see it first because I don't want it to catch you off guard. And we, I have a vow of obedience and I wouldn't have done it if he forbade me, but he, he turned it over to one of our theologians and said, would you please read Nathan's book and see if, if you think it causes any, uh, church trouble. I don't know how, if he said it that way, but. What is it? Is there anything that's against faith and morals or something like that? And uh, they passed on it. And so my, my provincial who was named Mark Padres at the time, I'd known him as a college student and he wrote a, a little paragraph at the front of the first book, just saying, this is Nathan's prayer work and I endorse it. And then we elect our leaders. So they go out of office. In fact, we're the world's oldest democracy and uh, they serve a term and they go out of office. And the next one, when I did book two did largely the same thing. He wrote a paragraph endorsing the work. So it's not for everybody, but I have the permission that I need. So uh, what's some of the common, well, maybe, I don't, I'm not sure if there's any one way to think about the afterlife, but have you found there's been some sort of common misconceptions or questions that people have about the afterlife and your work in particular? One of the things that I get, I, because I record all the sessions 
And we don't use any of their stories in public unless we go back a second time and ask their permission. But, and I've only done 39 of those in total out of like 550. But over the whole array of stories, one of the things that people are, the, the ones that I deal with, for, first of all, are not a cross-section of the population. They're a specific population that died suddenly and violently or who had uh, some, some tragedy that befell them like Wilhelmina that she just never got over. I get a little bit of that. So this is not the population at large because most people don't die traumatically. But uh, of those who do, they've almost all been in, in a kind of therapeutic level that was necessary uh, because they were so wounded. And they weren't ready for whatever you think might be the joys of heaven. You know how you go to a funeral and they say, well, now Jack's up there playing golf in heaven, or you know, now there she's with her bridge partners or whatever. You've just got in a car crash. You might not be ready for the bridge game or the golf. <laughs> you might need a chance to debrief. What what did happen, for example, if you caused an accident that killed you and other people? You might leave this life not only upset, angry, but guilty uh, and not ready to do cartwheels uh, or see the face of God or whatever you think. So I've, what I've seen is there's a therapeutic level where people just get what they need. And then when they, they've healed to the point they don't need to be here anymore, we're like the discharge staff at a medical center. We help you gather your things, make sure you understand your physical therapy, uh, your next doctor's appointment, well, you know, are, who's coming for you will be, you be well housed and fed. And we help you out the door. That's kind of what we do. And reading through your books, so the first book it was the stuck souls was the was the term, but yes. I can see how your your understanding or your the way you look at it now has changed quite a bit. Where the, they're not really stuck; they're just sort of partway through a process, and you're sort of now an integral part of that journey that they they're going through. Yeah, the first the I think Ray, the very first guy that I ever dealt with, was stuck because he had been taught that people die because God takes them. And so when he died at 20 years old in a fire, he didn't want any part of God because God took him. Well, that caused him to be in a loop. Uh, you're familiar with PTSD, post-traumatic stress, and all yep. trauma loop. It's an apt metaphor because people feel like they're trying to move ahead, but they can't get any traction like a wheel that's spinning and stuck. Uh, but not everybody's like that. A lot of them just uh, need to move through a process and they take whatever time they need. And people sometimes ask about time. I, at the beginning, I thought that none of them would pay attention to it because they would be outside of it because they died. But that's not so. Some of them pay a lot of attention to it, especially people who still have uh, minor children at the time of their death. If they have a five-year-old, they don't want to turn their back. Uh, they, they want to, even though they can't be here the way they were, they often want to keep in touch. They want to somehow enjoy being a part of the ongoing story. So some of them do pay more attention to time than other ones do. Some, some of them don't do that at all. Um, I'm afraid I'm rambling, Rod. Ask me a next question. <laughs> well, my next question is, have your experiences fundamentally changed what you understand to be consciousness and God and how the afterlife works as time has gone on, or, or has it been fairly much the same since the beginning. Um, I think it deepened a lot of what I already thought was true. One thing uh, that a lot of Christian people imagine is that 
uh, they will be harshly judged and they're frightened of dying because they, they're frightened that they'll be disapproved of. You know, we have cartoons of St. Peter sitting at a, a desk like a maitre d' uh, ready to look down his nose at you. You're not on the list, Rod. What the hell are you doing here? And, you know, or Jesus being ready to lower the boom like a judge that's sentencing you. That kind of thing is, is harsh and needless. I think the judging that I've seen happens is just to come to the truth of things. And oftentimes, people who are living confused and unhappy lives are believing things that aren't true. Or uh, they, get it, they get in some patterns where they create a story that if they're sticking to it and making themselves unhappy. A lot of addiction starts with pain that gets covered over with drug or alcohol stuff. And anyway, I've seen that a lot of them are delighted to be in a place where they're not being harshly judged and needlessly criticized. And whatever they do therapeutically works, especially for people that have been in addiction and have failed at rehabs. They really like it here because the diagnoses are never wrong. They don't have to hope that you, they can give you this pill and we'll wait two weeks and see if it works. That everything, anytime they exert effort, it's in the win column. There's never two steps forward, one step back. As long as they're honest and true and willing to work toward greater truth, they always progress. And they begin to have a kind of sense of self-esteem and positive momentum that is uh, very attractive to see and joyful to see. So some people, just reading through the books, some people from the time when they pass to when they make contact with you is quite short. Yes. And then for others, it's a really long time. Mm-hmm. What's the longest that it seems to be from when somebody actually uh, passed to when they make contact with you through your dream? Of the ones that are in the public in the three books, um, I think I had two suicide stories at the end of book two. You're probably not there yet because you said you got about a third of the way through the second mm-hmm. book. There are two suicides in that one, and they were both from the 1930s. Uh, once in a while, I've had one or two that were from, uh, one was a slave trading ship somewhere maybe in the 1870s or early 1800s. Uh, you know, in the United States, we had a horrific civil war in the 1860s. Sometimes I've had people that died in that, uh, but they're rare. Most of the ones that I've dealt with are in my lifetime or at least uh, 20th century, hmm. mostly in my so, lifetime. I was born in 1956. So most of them have, have lived during the time that I've been here on the earth. Do the souls that you talk to talk much about time? I, I, I'm always curious. I know time is a construct of our reality here, but it's different. You know, once we move on from here, do, do people often talk about that or their understanding of what time is like? like? Do you, do you, you must know somebody that never knows what time it is. Do you, do you have anybody that when you try to make a lunch or dinner date, you're fairly confident they won't remember or they'll be late? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there people are just like that here and, and people have different orientations towards time, uh, afterwards too. And. As I was saying earlier, sometimes if they have a compelling reason why they really want to stay more um, uh, engaged in what's going on on the earth, they'll pay more attention to time. Some of them really don't care. They just accept that 
they died and things shifted and there's all kind of new stimuli stimuli right in front of them and they don't feel the need to look back to anything they just live in them in the present so yeah they're kind of all over the map with regard to time but even the ones one thing that that's consistent is that um i've compared it to a montessori school are you familiar with those yes children seated in straight rows everybody turning in the same assignment at the same time they're not exactly turn loose in a completely chaotic random way but but children are allowed to have a lot more agency about what they study and a lot of them move slower just because that's all the effort they want to put forth and in the in my third book most recent one there's a young man named tony who died at 23 years old in an italian family and when we when we asked him permission to use his story in a book he said great i understand that if i make it in i have a chance to sound off and and give people advice on what to do when they die. Well, kind of, if that's the way you want to do it. He said, well, what I'd say to them is hurry up, amp it up. You know, don't do anything long and slow. If you've got stuff you've got to work with, work through it, do it fast. And, and then he said, um, you know, people can do whatever they want, but if you push yourself hard to work through whatever your stuff is, you'll find that resources start showing up that you didn't know existed. You can look at the front end of some job you've got to do and think you've got to do it all on your own and it's going to take forever. But if you just get started here, help that you didn't know existed shows up and you move fast. He was talking about time and moving fast. I think you mentioned the sort of average once a week, people, uh, souls make contact with you through your dreams. Is it still that sort of regularity? Yeah, just this past week, I had two in the same night, but I try to keep it under like eight to 10 who are in the line. Most Fridays, I have a two-hour session with prayer partners, and then sometimes I double up depending upon the workload in other parts of my life. I'm an author and a speaker, and I'm a, a cook and a grocery shopper and a friend and golfer. I mean, it's, this is not the only thing I do like anybody else. And so sometimes I find that all the different things I'm juggling have caused me to follow up with it behind and i try to keep it within two months of the time that they came to me we do the what, what i call a crossing and so like this i'm recording this on a thursday and uh, i'll have a session tomorrow morning normally we i schedule with my partners for two hours at a time and we can usually do two in, in that amount of time it takes about 40 mm. minutes normally do, do you ever stop and wonder like how the process is sort of being managed on the other side? I think of sometimes it's like, well, we've got all these people here and we've got Father Nathan, you know, he's actually got a bit banked up. So we'll go and allocate this one to this person. Yes, there's or, plenty of ways. That that. And, and, and I believe that God created an interdependent universe. You know, in America, 4th of July is our Independence Day. I just think if, if, if I were in charge, I'd want to make July the 5th be Interdependence Day. I think they're equally important and where there's an interdependence where we help each other that makes us, it makes the world go round. It, it's a good that we aren't all independent. And so, uh, when I'm, when we're working together on this kind of thing, what their angels often come on and they thank us for the work we do. And some, several times they've thanked us for being so methodical because we do it the same way all the time. And that is helpful to people that have been through trauma because we're not throwing in them some kind of curve where well, it, it, what 
what they've been told we do is what we do. And that uh, makes us more attractive than what some other option may be. I'm fascinated by that, the opening prayer process that you go to the, yeah. to create that sphere of protection. Do you actually, uh, do you have any visuals of angels, et cetera, or is, how does the information come? Is it just the, the sort of a voice only? This is a tactile process for me. It's, it, uh, um, sometimes it's called clairsentient to, to once in a while we can, we can think we're alone at our desk and we get a feeling that there's someone else with us, but it's not our five senses telling us so. Hmm. It's something else, the sixth sense. And then we turn and then there she is. Uh, well, I just had this uh, touching when you mentioned the, the, the saints, the holy ones. Sometimes the people that are crossing will sometimes show me, like when I was describing the Wilhelmina story a while ago, she was talking so vividly about her, her husband being 16 years old holding flowers. And I think I kind of saw that. I might be misremembering it and just going by what she spoke, but I think I saw that. And then there are other times when they show me things and, and I see what they're saying. Other times they'll say, hey, look at that. And I'll say, I'm sorry, I can't see what you're seeing. I'll have to describe it. So it, it can be a little bit of both. For some, some people, uh, these things come through as words. So you actually hear it like, is it is it hearing or is it more that it's like a thought and then you've got to like translate that into something that well, you can then be spoken? Me, um, I'm most of the time, I'm the one allowing my voice to be borrowed to allow someone to speak through, but not always. Right. I've got a couple of prayer partners who have a similar gift. And so sometimes I'll be on the receiving end of somebody else's speech. Most of the time it's me doing that. And then we're co-conscious. They're not, I, um, they borrow, in fact, they don't need to speak English. They say, I'd never spoke, I never learned to speak English, but I'm just forming my thoughts and they're coming out of you in English. And so, mm. and then sometimes I have a pretty broad vocabulary because I'm well-educated and I cared a lot about words and spelling bees and stuff. And so I built up a large English vocabulary. So sometimes people will end up using a phrase that's within me and available to them. And then they'll stop and say, I've never used that word before. You know, that's. But I've never said that, but it works. So it can be fun. And then people are just so interesting. You must find them interesting. You wouldn't do, do a podcast. Um, uh, we can be very different from one another in our style, but we all have some kind of charm. And all the ones that come through me, they've, they've, uh, they've progressed enough through whatever anger or pain, confusion, sorrow, guilt, whatever it was that has held them back so far, they've come through it enough that they're ready to move to a next level where they hope they're getting here isn't needed. They can still come back and visit. It's like when you left elementary school and went to junior high, that doesn't mean they've never let you back in the building. You could go back and visit an old teacher perhaps, but you don't need to be there anymore. You've learned what it could teach you and then you move on, kind of like that. Mm. So that experience, you said, you use the word co-conscious, which I really, really like. So what's that experience like? Do you do you sort of like step to one side and just allow something to occur? You're not actually consciously involved. I use the, you might, because you've read a book and a half, you, you might know that the angels that come on at the beginning to give us a little bit of information to get things started, they will very often say, I'm going to slide to the side now. And I don't know why, but it feels to the right over here on my right. And they say, I'm going to slide to the right, but I'll be with you in prayer. I'm available if you need me. We never do, but they always say that. And then. 
the other one comes in and uh, sometimes it feels from above, sometimes from the other side uh, and their, their energy emerges and then they start to speak. And I have to identify when my voice changes from Nathan to another person so that I don't confuse my prayer partners because my vocal cords are fairly fixed. They're, it's air moving through flaps of skin. And a, another person could speak with a, an Australian accent, or they could speak very rapidly or slowly, but it's still going to sound like my voice, mostly. So I try to make sure mm. that, uh, that, that the prayer partner understands clearly who they're talking to. Yeah, I think I was thinking in, in uh, serial terms, but it's more, it sounds like it's more like a merging you know, of, of the two and, and you can take control at any stage and then release control and there's this sort of this, this synergy, synergistic thing that goes on by this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's polite. These people are, have, have been vetted. I'm not dealing with uh, enraged people up to no good or any such thing. That's why we do the protective prayer at the front end. Uh, and in fact, there was, did you read the story of, of Sheriff, the, uh, the, the small town, uh, law enforcement man that was killed on his sister's front steps? No, that's that, that interesting. One, that one that's coming in, in book two. He was a man that was not religious, but paid very little attention to spiritual things, but he was, he was a sheriff and he was about his point about his business one day when he saw a ghostly form of his sister from like the shoulders up and he said, I'd never seen anything like it in my life, but it looked like a ghost of her, at least part of her. And the impact that it had on me was, I need to get to her house right away. Well, he went to her house right away and he thought he was doing a wellness check. Maybe it's nothing at all, but maybe she's fallen or maybe something's happened. But he got onto her lawn and he saw uh, three men running out her front door, cursing her and moving down her steps and he knew that they had shot her he had heard gunshots and mm. he pulled his gun and he shot one of them and killed him but another one had what he called a stupid little white plastic gun apparently something you can get mail order on the internet or some uh, what is that like 3d molding stuff 3d uh, printed printed and where that where it wouldn't go through a metal detector because it was not made of metal but he said, whatever that stupid thing was, it put a bullet through me that killed me. Punk. He called the guy a punk. <laughs> but uh, he was angry and I could feel he was angry. But I knew that they don't get, they're not allowed in my line unless they've been vetted. I'm not getting random stuff. I'm getting somebody in, is responsible to see that this man can do this. And they, he told me, he, did, he only wanted to go by the word sheriff, by the name sheriff. He said, they told me that my that my anger was a high fever and that I couldn't do this until they got my fever down. And he said, they treated it like your blood pressure or <laughs> your temperature. And I watched exactly to the decimal point. And as soon as I got to the place they said I needed to get, they said, okay, I'm ready. And they said, well, wait a minute. We'll let you know. <laughs> said, we, you have to promise that you won't go inside this man and start raging. You were a public servant. You don't get to just rage. You have to be a public servant. And if you go in that man, you have to behave yourself. And so he did. He, he comported himself well, and he was able to make the passage that he needed to make. But he was only barely ready. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm out of questions here. I've, I've gone through my questions. Uh, Nathan, well, 
Why don't you tell us about your a little bit about your third book? Because I'm really looking forward to reading it. I haven't purchased it yet, but just tell us how it's different to the other two books and why people might no, want to check it out. Read them this third one. We cut we we've kept the branding, you know, the logo, colors, and all of that just for consistency. But in this one, uh, I decided we subtitled it's Afterlife Interrupted Book Three. Please let me explain, because sometimes just in the course of the um, the process that we've been describing for the past hour, somebody just explains something that makes you go, wow, I never thought of that. Um, or they just have a way with words where they can take a complex set of emotions or circumstances and, and tell it with such clarity that, uh, that it just a light goes on. So uh, we chose 13 stories that we felt had particularly uh, good explanatory detail in it for this one. And uh, it's only been out for about not even f two, full two months, but some people that have, are familiar with the other books say this is their favorite one. Uh, and I don't know when people ask me that, I'll, you asked me that earlier, didn't you? Is there one that stands out? Uh, but there's Ooh. 39 that stand out. It's just that I had to give you an answer. Tony, the fellow that, uh, that I, I mentioned earlier was 23 years old, Italian guy from a big Italian family. And he was, um, they were all trying to recruit him into their small businesses. It was a family where everybody ran a bakery or a dry cleaners or something. Every, they had all these little small businesses, but they quarreled all the time. And all of his aunts and uncles complained about each other. And then they complained about the generation of their parents and whatnot. He just didn't want to be involved in all that drama. So he chose a job inside an oil. He was an oil field worker in a refinery on the day he died. And he was so funny about it. He had a great sense of humor and said he was... They were in this refinery that was blowing up and um, uh, he was inside a 15 passenger van that looked like it was going to roll over. They were having to turn over because of the turn around in a tight space because of this explosion. And he said, this thing could go and I could either die of blunt force trauma. I could die of a, a fireball or I could land in nasty water inside an oil refinery. I can drown in oily water. <laughs> so those are my choices. So, uh, but he called his guardian angel Tinkerbell from the Walt Disney, uh, what would Tinkerbell is in what Peter Pan? He said, Tinkerbell did a yes. great job. She yanked me out of there before I could burn or drown or anything. She got me out of that mess and sat me down next to the road and said, do you understand you're safe here with me? Your body's over there. You're not in it anymore because it brought you through a lot of things, but it couldn't bring through you through what just happened. But you're over here safe with me. Do you understand? And he said, she was a really good teacher. I understood. Yep, got it. And said, you can look over there at that if you want to, but you don't have to. And we're going to sit right here until you say the word. If you, the minute you're ready to leave here, I'll take you somewhere better. And he said, why would I want to sit on the road in a refinery? <laughs> next to a car crash. I can't think of any reason why I want to stay here. So he, he let her take him away. Do you, do you remember uh, in Australia, did they have a, a, a comic in the newspaper that was called The Far Side? Absolutely. It was usually a one panel. Uh, yep. And there was a famous one for all the years that ran that was called The Crisis Center. Do you happen to remember it? I don't remember that one. There must have been a flood because this building, this three-story building is now floating down a river and it's on fire and it's about to go over a waterfall. And on the outside of it, there's a sign that says crisis center. <laughs> Every possible crisis is happening all at once at 
crisis center. Well, he remembered that in the moment before he died and thought, shit, I'm in the crisis center. I could die any of these three ways. And after he was through it, uh, his guardian brought him somewhere else. And then he was in some sort of therapeutic setting, but he hadn't been there very long and didn't need to be very there long. And he said, they started bringing me family members and they were saying, what the hell are you doing here? Tony, you're too young. And uh, eventually they they explained to him, his whole family showed up for him, like uh, looking like bowling pins, like one and then two, and then back into infinity. Everybody he's ever been related to in the history of the world. And uh, he, they explained to me, they said, you know, you, you were, you're trying to navigate how to be in your family because they were so uh, critical of each other. And he was told here, we're not allowed to annoy each other for all eternity here. We, we all have to behave like our best adult selves. And, and it's really delightful because we enjoy being around each other without all that nonsense that we used to inflict on each other. Hmm. I thought that was a good explanation of, and I think it's hopeful for anybody that's in this audience that has a family that they love and can't stand at the same time. uh, There might be a future version of that family of yours where we're not allowed to annoy each other for all eternity and where you just get to be the best of each other and where you get over whatever pettiness you contribute to that, you know, where you stop that nonsense and, and uh, treat people kindly and and overlook things that Hmm. don't be criticized. So anyway, book three has got a lot of explanations like that. What's it like to die while autistic? And what's it like to leave an autistic consciousness in a body that had that uh, issue and move outside of it? What's it like to be conscious in the afterlife without autism? Mm. That, that was one that's in the, in the new book. I have one final question for you. Okay. And it's sometimes... Uh, yeah, because I, I interview a lot of people with near-death experiences and spiritually transformed experiences, and sometimes people who are having a really hard time of their life here on planet Earth wonder to themselves, "Why am I going through this when I can just be on the other side where it's everything's just you know it seems like it's really wonderful?" What, what would you say to people in that situation? The present moment is the most important you can ever live. Don't get ahead of yourself, you know, because that's a bad habit. Uh, you can bring that into the afterlife and mess up your afterlife. <laughs> but you know, just the present moment is the most important moment. It, the, the past is lovely, but it's fixed and static. I'm, I'm kind of quoting C.S. Lewis in the Screw Tape Letters. Did you ever happen to read that? It's a real great uh, class. Parts of it, yeah. He talks from the demonic point of view about how to ruin a human soul. Get them to focus on the past because it's fixed and static and it no longer moves. You can sadden them and depress them. We've had great success with widows in this regard. Make them wish for what they can never have again and sadden them. And he said, failing that, try to get them to go into the future because it's the part of time that is the least real. It has never happened. Everything about it is speculative and unreal. Get them to spend lots of time there, especially if you can get them to fear it. Get them to dread it because terrible things are going to happen in it. The thing you want to do most of all is keep them off the present moment. As he said, that's where the enemy will meet them, where God will meet them, because God is always now. Uh, And uh, that, he said, present moment is that moment that's lit up with those resplendent rays that cast their ghastly luminosity to the pit of hell. We can't stand the present moment. uh, So I would just say to anybody that that is having a, a rugged time here and and who might have thoughts about 
uh, ending it all. You can't. You can only end part of it anyway. You're you're immortal. Sure. You you're only partly mortal. You can kill the mortal part, but they'll still be you, and and uh, there'll still be stuff to work through. But just try to do your best to stay in the present moment and ask for the present. I call it the present grace for Christians. We call that uh, asking for your daily bread. You don't ask for a bakery uh, or a, a fleet of trucks full of bread. You just ask for what you need right now, and it'll be provided. Um, anyway, that's what I would say. Mm. Well, Father Nathan, it's been great talking to you again. It's really good to have you back on the show. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time today. Glad to. I can be found on my website at nathan-castle.com. And um, I'm, if you send me an email, if you have a question, I prefer that people at least read book one so that they're not asking me questions in an email that could have been answered had they read a book. Uh, there just aren't enough hours in the day to say what I've already said. But if, if there's something that I can do to, to help after that, I'm, I'm at your service and I'm praying for you. Okay. All right. Thanks for being here. All right. God bless you.